the incomplete, true, authentic, and wonderful history of May Day. The Green Once upon a time, long before Weinberger bombed North Africans, before the Bank of Boston laundered money, or Reagan honored the Nazi war dead, the earth was blanketed by a broad mantle of forests. As late as Caesar's time, a person might travel through the woods for two months without gaining an unobstructed view of the sky. The immense forests of Europe, Asia, Africa, and America provided the atmosphere with oxygen and the earth with nutrients. Within the woodland ecology, our ancestors did not have to work the graveyard shift or to deal with flex time or work from nine to five. Indeed, the Native Americans whom Captain John Smith encountered in 1606 only worked four hours a week. The origin of May Day is to be found in the woodland epic of history. In Europe, as in Africa, people honored the woods in many ways. With the leafing of the trees in spring, people celebrated the fructifying spirit of vegetation, to use the phrase of J.G. Fraser, the anthropologist. They did this in May, a month named after Maya, the mother of all the gods according to the ancient Greeks, giving birth even to Zeus. The Greeks had their sacred groves, the Druids their oak worship, the Romans their games in honor of Floralia. In Scotland, the herdsmen formed circles and danced around fires. The Celts lit bonfires in hilltops to honor their god, Beltane. In the Tyrol, people let their dogs bark and made music with pots and pans. In Scandinavia, fires were lit and the witches came out. Everywhere, people went a-maying by going into the woods and bringing back leaf, bough, and blossom to decorate their persons, homes, and loved ones with green garlands. Outside, theater was performed with characters like Jack in the Green and the Queen of May. Trees were planted. Maypoles were erected. Dances were danced. Music was played. Drinks were drunk and love was made. Winter was over. Spring had sprung. The history of these customs is complex and affords the student of the past with many interesting insights into the history of religion, gender, reproduction, and village ecology. Take Joan of Arc, who was burned in May 1431. Her inquisitors believed she was a witch. Not far from her birthplace, she told the judges, there is a tree that they call the Lady's Tree. Others call it the Fairy's Tree. It is a beautiful tree, from which comes the Maypole. I have sometimes been to play with the young girls to make garlands for Our Lady of Domremy. Often I have heard the old folks say that the fairies haunt this tree. In the general indictment against Joan, one of the particulars against her was dressing like a man. The paganism of Joan's heresy originated in the Old Stone Age, when religion was animistic, and shamans were women and men. Monotheism arose with the Mediterranean empires. Even the most powerful Roman Empire had to make deals with its conquered and enslaved peoples. Syncretism. As it destroyed some customs, it had to accept or transform others. Thus we have Christmas trees. May Day became a day to honor the saints, Philip and James, who were unwilling slaves to empire. 
James the Less neither drank nor shaved. He spent so much time praying that he developed huge calluses on his knees, likening them to camel legs. Philip was a lazy guy. When Jesus said, follow me, Philip tried to get out of it by saying he had to tend to his father's funeral. And it was to this excuse that the carpenter's son made his famous reply, let the dead bury the dead. James was stoned to death, and Philip was crucified head downwards. Their martyrdom introduces the red side of the story. Even still, the green side is preserved because, according to the floral directory, the tulip is dedicated to Philip and bachelor buttons to James. The farmers, workers, and child-bearers, laborers, of the Middle Ages had hundreds of holy days which preserved the May green, despite the attack on peasants and witches. Despite the complexities, whether May Day was observed by sacred or profane ritual, by pagan or Christian, by magic or not, by straits or gaze, by gentle or calloused hands, it was always a celebration of all that is free and life-giving in the world. That is the green side of the story. Whatever else it was, it was not a time to work. Therefore, it was attacked by the authorities. The repression had begun with the burning of women, and it continued in the 16th century when America was discovered. The slave trade was begun, and nation-states and capitalism were formed. In 1550, an act of parliament demanded that maypoles be destroyed, and it outlawed games. In 1644, the Puritans in England abolished May Day altogether. To these work ethicists, the festival was obnoxious for paganism and worldliness. Philip Stubbs, for example, in Anatomy of Abuses, 1585, wrote of the maypole, and then fall they to banquet and feast, to leap and dance about it, as the heathen people did, at the dedication of their idols. When a Puritan mentioned heathen, we know genocide was not far away. According to the excellent slideshow at the Quincy Historical Society, 90% of the Massachusetts people, including Chief Chicotabat, died from chickenpox or smallpox a few years after the Puritans landed in 1619. The Puritans also objected to the unrepressed sexuality of the day. Stubbs said, Of forty, three score, or an hundred maids go to the wood, there have scarcely the third part of them returned home again as they went. The people resisted the repressions. Thenceforth they called their May sports the Robin Hood games, capering about with sprigs of hawthorn in their hair and bells jangling from their knees. The ancient charaders of May were transformed into an outlaw community, Maid Marians and Little Johns. The May feast was presided over by the Lord of Misrule, the king of unreason, or the abbot of inobedience. Washington Irving was later to write that the feeling for May has become chilled by habits of gain and traffic, as the gainers and traffickers sought to impose the regimen of monotonous work. The people responded to preserve their holy day. Thus began in earnest the red side of the story of May Day. The struggle was brought to Massachusetts in 1626.
Thomas Morton of Marymount. In 1625, Captain Wollaston, Thomas Morton, and thirty others sailed from England, and months later, taking their bearings from a red cedar tree, they disembarked in Quincy Bay. A year later, Wollaston, impatient for lucre and gain, left for good to Virginia. Thomas Morton settled in Passanagasset, which he named Marymount. The land seemed a paradise to him. He wrote, There are fowls in abundance, fish in multitudes, and I discovered, besides, millions of turtle doves on the green boughs, which sat pecking of the full, ripe, pleasant grapes that were supported by the lusty trees, whose fruitful load did cause the arms to bend. On May Day, 1627, he and his Indian friends, stirred by the sound of drums, erected a maypole eighty feet high, decorated it with garlands, wrapped it in ribbons, and nailed to its top the antlers of a buck. Later he wrote that he set up a maypole upon the festival day of Philip and James, and therefore brewed a barrel of excellent beer. A Ganymede sang a Bacchanalian song. Morton attached to the pole the first lyric verses penned in America which concluded with the proclamation that the first of May at Marymount shall be kept holy day. The Puritans at Plymouth were opposed to the May Day. They called the Maypole an idol and named Marymount Mount Dagon after the god of the first ocean-going imperialists, the Phoenicians. More likely, though the Puritans were the imperialists, not Morton, who worked with slaves, servants, and Native Americans, person to person, everyone was equal in his social contract. Governor Bradford wrote, They also set up a maypole, drinking and dancing about it many days together, inviting the Indian women for their consorts, dancing and frisking together, like so many fairies, or furies rather, and worse practice. Marymount became a refuge for Indians, the discontented, gay people, runaway servants, and what the governor called all the scum of the country. When the authorities reminded him that his actions violated the king's proclamation, Morton replied that it was no law. Miles Standish, whom Morton called Mr. Shrimp, attacked. The maypole was cut down. The settlement was burned. Morton's goods were confiscated. He was chained in the bilbos and ostracized to England aboard the ship The Gift. At a cost, the Puritans complained of twelve pounds seven shillings. The Rainbow Coalition of Marymount was thus destroyed for the time being. That Marymount later, 1636, became associated with Anne Hutchinson, the famous midwife, spiritualist, and feminist, surely was more than coincidental. Her brother-in-law ran the Chapel of Ease. She thought that God loved everybody, regardless of their sins. She doubted the Puritans' authority to make law. A statue of Robert Burns in Quincy, near to Marymount, quotes the poet's lines, A fig for those by law protected, Liberty's glorious feast, Courts for cowards were erected, Churches built to please the priest. Thomas Morton was a thorn in the side of the Boston and Plymouth Puritans, because he had an alternate vision of Massachusetts. He was impressed by its fertility, they by its scarcity. He befriended the Indians, they shuddered at the thought. He was egalitarian, they proclaimed themselves the elect. He freed servants. They lived off them. He armed the Indians. They used arms against Indians. To Nathaniel Hawthorne, the destiny of American settlement was decided at Marymount. Casting the struggle as mirth versus gloom, 
Grizzly saints versus gay sinners, green versus iron. It was the Puritans who won, and the fate of America was determined in favor of psalm-singing Indian scalpers whose notion of the maypole was a whipping post. Parts of the past live, parts die. The red cedar that drew Morton first to Marymount blew down in the gale of 1898. A section of it, about eight feet of its trunk, became a power fetish in 1919, placed as it was next to the president's chair of the Quincy City Council. Interested parties may now view it in the Quincy Historical Museum. Living trees, however, have since grown, despite the closure of the shipyards. On both sides of the Atlantic. In England, the attacks on Mayday were a necessary part of the wearisome, unending attempt to establish industrial work discipline. The attempt was led by the Puritans with their belief that toil was godly and less toil wicked. Absolute surplus value could be increased only by increasing the hours of labor and abolishing holy days. A parson wrote a piece of work propaganda called Funebria Flore, or the downfall of the May games. He attacked ignorance, atheists, papists, drunkards, swearers, swashbucklers, maid marians, morris dancers, maskers, mummers, maypole stealers, health drinkers, together with a rapscallion rout of fiddlers, fools fighters, gamesters, lewd women, light women, condemners of magistracy, affronters of ministry, disobedience to parents, misspenders of time, and abusers of the creature, etc. At about this time, Isaac Newton, the gravitationist and machinist of time, said work was a law of planets and apples alike. Thus work ceased to be merely the ideology of the Puritans. It became a law of the universe. In 1717, Newton purchased London's hundred-foot maypole and used it to prop up his telescope. Chimney sweeps and dairymaids led the resistance. The sweeps dressed up as women on May Day were put on aristocratic periwigs. They sang songs and collected money. When the Earl of Butte in 1763 refused to pay, the opprobrium was so great that he was forced to resign. Milkmaids used to go amaying by dressing in floral garlands, dancing and getting the dairymen to distribute their milk yield freely. Soot and milk workers thus helped to retain the holy day right into the Industrial Revolution. The ruling class used the day for its own purposes. Thus, when Parliament was forced to abolish slavery in the British dominions, it did so on May Day 1807. In 1820, the Cato Street conspirators plotted to destroy the British cabinet while it was having dinner. Irish, Jamaican, and Cockney were hanged for the attempt on May Day 1820. A conspirator wrote his wife, saying, Justice and liberty have taken their flight to other distant shores. He meant America, where Boston Brahmin, robber baron, and southern plantocrat divided and ruled an arching rainbow of people. Two bands of that rainbow came from English and Irish islands. One was Green, Robert Owen, union leader, socialist, and founder of utopian communities in America. 
announced the beginning of the millennium after May Day 1833. The other was read, on May Day 1830, a founder of the Knights of Labor, the United Mine Workers of America, and the Wobblies, was born in Ireland. Mary Harris Jones, a.k.a. Mother Jones, she was a Maya of the American working class. May Day continued to be commemorated in America, one way or another, despite the victory of the Puritans at Marymount. On May Day 1779, the revolutionaries of Boston confiscated the estates of enemies of liberty. On May Day 1808, 20 different dancing groups of the wretched Africans in New Orleans danced to the tunes of their own drums until sunset when the slave patrols showed themselves with their cutlasses. The principal dancers or leaders are dressed in a variety of wild and savage fashions, always ornamented with a number of tales of the small wild beasts, observed a strolling white man. The Red, Haymarket Centennial The history of the modern May Day originates in the center of the North American plains at Haymarket in Chicago, the city on the make in May 1886. The red side of that story is more well-known than the green, because it was bloody. But there was also a green side to the tale, though the green was not so much that of pretty grass garlands as it was of greenbacks. For in Chicago it was said, the dollar is king. Of course, the prairies are green in May. Virgin soil, dark, brown, crumbling, shot with fine black sand. It was the produce of thousands of years of humus and organic decomposition. For many centuries, this earth was husbanded by the Native Americans of the plains. As Black Elk said, theirs is the story of all life that is holy and is good to tell, and of us two-leggeds sharing in it with the four-leggeds and the wings of the air, and all green things. For these are children of one mother, and their father is one spirit. From such a green perspective, the white men appeared as pharaohs, and indeed, as Abe Lincoln put it, these prairies were the Egypt of the West. The land was mechanized. Relative surplus value could only be obtained by reducing the price of food. Proteins and vitamins of this fertile earth spread through the whole world. Chicago was the jugular vein. Cyrus McCormick wielded the surgeon's knife. His mechanical reapers harvested the grasses and grains. McCormick produced 1,500 reapers in 1849. By 1884, he was producing 80,000. Not that McCormick actually made reapers. Members of the Molders Union Local 23 did that. And on May Day 1867, they went on strike, starting the eight-hour movement. A staggering transformation was wrought. It was farewell to the hammer and sickle, goodbye to the cradle scythe, so long to Emerson's man with the hoe. These now became the artifacts of nostalgia and romance. It became hello to the hobo, move on to the harvest stiffs, line up the proletarians. Such were the new commands of civilization. Thousands of immigrants, many from Germany, poured into Chicago after the Civil War. Class war was advanced, technically and logistically, in 1855, the Chicago police used Gatling guns against the workers who protested the closing of the beer gardens. In the bread riot of 1872, the police clubbed hungry people in a tunnel under the river. In the 1877 railway strike, 
Federal troops fought workers at the Battle of the Viaduct. These troops were recently seasoned from fighting the Sioux, who had killed Custer. Henceforth, the defeated Sioux could only go to a mountaintop and cry for a vision. The Pinkerton Detective Agency put visions into practice by teaching the city police how to spy and to form fighting columns for deployment in city streets. A hundred years ago, during the streetcar strike, the police issued a shoot-to-kill order. McCormick cut wages 15%. His profit rate was 71%. In May 1886, four molders whom McCormick locked out were shot dead by the police. Thus did the Grim Reaper maintain his profits. Nationally, May 1st, 1886 was important because a couple of years earlier, the Federation of Organized Trade and Labor Unions of the United States and Canada resolved that eight hours shall constitute a legal day's labor from and after May 1st, 1886. On 4th of May, 1886, several thousand people gathered near Haymarket Square to hear what August spies and newspaper men had to say about the shootings at the McCormick Works. Albert Parsons, a typographer and labor leader, spoke next. Later, at his trial, he said, What is socialism or anarchism? Briefly stated, it is the right of the toilers to the free and equal use of the tools of production, and the right of the producers to their product. He was followed by good-natured Sam Fielden, who as a child had worked in the textile factories of Lancashire, England. He was a Methodist preacher and labor organizer. He got done speaking at 10.30 p.m. At that time, 176 policemen charged the crowd that had dwindled to about 200. An unknown hand threw a stick of dynamite, the first time that Alfred Nobel's invention was used in class battle. All hell broke loose. Many were killed, and the rest is history. Make the raids first and look up the law afterwards, was the sheriff's dictum. It was followed religiously across the country. Newspapers screamed for blood, homes were ransacked, and suspects were subjected to the third degree. Eight men were railroaded in Chicago at a farcical trial. Four men hanged on Black Friday, 11th of November, 1887. There will come a time when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you strangled today, said Spies before he choked. May Day since 1886. Lucy Parsons, widowed by Chicago's Just Us, was born in Texas. She was partly Afro-American, partly Native American, and partly Hispanic. She set out to tell a world the true story of one whose only crime was that he lived in advance of his time. She went to England and encouraged English workers to make May Day an international holiday for shortening the hours of work. Her friend, William Morris, wrote a poem called May Day. Workers, they are few, we are many, and yet, O oh, our mother, many years were wordless, and naught was our deed. But now the word flitteth from brother to brother, we have furrowed the acres and scattered the seed. Earth, win on then unyielding, through fair and foul weather, and pass not a day that your deed shall avail, and in hope every springtide come gather together, that unto the earth ye may tell all your tale. Her work was not in vain. 
May Day, or the Day of the Chicago Martyrs, as it is still called in Mexico, belongs to the working class and is dedicated to the revolution, as Eugene Debs put it in his May Day editorial of 1907. The AFL declared it a holiday. Sam Gomper sent an emissary to Europe to have it proclaimed an International Labor Day. Both the Knights of Labor and the Second International officially adopted the day. Bismarck, on the other hand, outlawed May Day. President Grover Cleveland announced that the first Monday in September would be Labor Day in America as he tried to divide the international working class. Huge numbers were out of work, and they began marching. Under the generalship of Jacob Coxey, they descended on Washington, D.C. on May Day, 1894, the first big march on Washington. Two years later, across the world, Lenin wrote an important May Day pamphlet for the Russian factory workers in 1896. The Russian Revolution of 1905 began on May Day. With the success of the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, the red side of May Day became scarlet, crimson, for 10 million people were slaughtered in World War I. The end of the war brought work stoppings, general strikes, and insurrections all over the world, from Mexico to Kenya, from China to France. In Boston on May Day 1919, the young telephone workers threatened to strike and 20,000 workers in Lawrence went on strike again for the eight-hour day. There were fierce clashes between working people and police in Cleveland as well as in other cities on May Day of that year. A lot of socialists, anarchists, Bolsheviks, Wobblies, and other I-won't-workers ended up in jail as a result. This didn't get them down. At Wire City, as they called the Federal Pen at Fort Leavenworth, there was a grand parade and no work on May Day 1919. Pictures of Lenin and Lincoln were tied to the end of broomsticks and held afloat. There were speeches and songs. The Liberator supplies us with an account of the day, but it does not tell us who won the wobbly socialist horseshoe throwing contest, nor does it tell us what happened to the soldier caught waving a red ribbon from the guards' barracks. Meanwhile, one mile underground in the copper mines of Bisbee, where there are no national borders, Spanish-speaking Americans were singing the International on May Day. In the 1920s and 1930s, the day was celebrated by union organizers, the unemployed, and determined workers. In New York City, the big May Day celebration was held in Union Square. In the 1930s, Lucy Parsons marched in Chicago at May Day with her young friend, Studs Terkel. May Day 1946, the Arabs began a general strike in Palestine and the Jews of the displaced persons camps in Landsberg, Germany, went on hunger strike. On May Day 1947, auto workers in Paris downed tools. An insurrection in Paraguay broke out. The mafia killed six May Day marchers in Sicily. And the Boston Parks commissioners said that this was the first year in living memory when neither communists nor socialists had applied for a permit to rally on the common. 1968 was a good year for May Day. Allen Ginsberg was made the Lord of Misrule in Prague before the Russians got there. In London, hundreds of students lobbied Parliament against a bill to stop third world immigration into England. In Mississippi, police could not prevent 350 black students from supporting their jailed friends. At Columbia University, thousands of students petitioned against armed police on campus. 
In Detroit, with the help of the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, the first wildcat strike in 15 years took place at the Hamtrak Assembly Plant, Dodge, Maine, against speed-up. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, black leaders advocated police reforms while in New York, the mayor signed a bill providing the police with the most sweeping emergency powers known in American history. The climax to the 68 May was reached in France, where there was a gigantic general strike under strange slogans such as Parlez à vos voisines, l'imagination prend les pouvoirs, dessous les pavés c'est la plage. On May Day in 1971, President Nixon couldn't sleep. He ordered 10,000 paratroopers and marines to Washington, D.C. because he was afraid that some people calling themselves the May Day tribe might succeed in their goal of blocking access to the Justice Department. In the Philippines, four students were shot to death protesting the dictatorship. In Boston, Mayor White argued against the right of municipal workers, including the police, to withdraw their services or stop working. In May 1980, we may see green themes in Mozambique, where the workers lamented the absence of beer, or in Germany, where 300 women witches rampage through Hamburg. Red themes may be seen in the 30,000 Brazilian auto workers who struck, or in the 5.8 million Japanese who struck against inflation. On May Day 1980, the green and red themes were combined when a former Buick automaker from Detroit, one Mr. Toad, sat at a picnic table and penned the following lines. The eight-hour day is not enough. We are thinking of more and better stuff. So here is our prayer, and here is our plan. We want what we want, and we'll take what we can, down with wars both small and large, except for the ones where we're in charge. Those are the wars of class against class where we get a chance to kick some ass, for air to breathe and water to drink, and no more poison from the kitchen sink, for land that's green and life that's saved, and less and less of the earth that's paved. No more women who are less than free, or men who cannot learn to see. Their power steals their humanity, and makes us all less than we can be. For teachers who learn, and students who teach, and schools that are kept beyond the reach, of provosts and deans and chancellors and such, and Xerox and Kodak and Shell, Royal Dutch, an end to shops that are dark and dingy, an end to bosses whether good or stingy, an end to work that produces junk, an end to junk that produces work, an end to all in charge, the jerks, for all who dance and sing loud cheers, to the prophets of doom we send some jeers, to our friends and lovers we give free beers, and to all who are here, a day without fears. So on this first of May, we all should say that we will either make it or break it, or to put this thought another way. Let's take it easy, but let's take it. Law Day, USA. Yet May Day was always a troubling day in America. Some wished to forget it. In 1939, Pennsylvania declared it 
Americanism Day. In 1947, Congress declared it to be Loyalty Day. Yet these attempts to hide the meaning of the day have never succeeded. As the Wobblies say, we never forget. Like in 1958, at the urging of Charles Rhine, proclaimed May 1st Law Day slash USA. As a result, the politicians had another opportunity for bombast about the Cold War and to tout their own virtues. Senator Javits, for instance, took a deep historical breath in May 1960 by saying American ideas were the highest ever espoused since the dawn of civilization. Governor Rockefeller of New York got right to his point by saying that the traditional May Day bordered on treason. As an activity for the day, Senator Wiley recommended that people read statute books. In preaching on obedience to authority on May Day 1960, the chaplain of the Senate believed it was the first time in the 20th century that the subject had been addressed. He reminded people of the words carved on the courthouse in Worcester, Massachusetts, Obedience to law is liberty. He said God is all law, and suggested we sing the hymn, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. He complained that TV shows made fun of cops and husbands. He said God had become too maternal. Beneath the hypocrisy of such talk, at the time the Senate was rejecting the jurisdiction of the world court, there were indications of the revolt in the kitchens. In addition to the trumpeting Cold War overtones, frightened patriarchal undertones were essential to the Law Day music. Indeed, it attempted to drown out both the red and the green. Those who have to face the law and order music on a daily basis, the lawyers and the orderers, also have to make their own deals. Among the lawyers, there are conservatives and liberals. They are generally ideologues. On Law Day 1964, the president of the Connecticut Bar wrote against civil rights demonstrators, corrupt labor unions, juvenile delinquency, and Liz Taylor. William O. Douglas, on the other hand, on Law Day 1962, warned against mimicking British imperialism and favored independence movements and the Peace Corps by saying, We need Michigan in Nigeria, California in the Congo, Colombia in Iran, which has come true, at least judging by what's written on sweatshirts around the world. Neither the conservative nor the liberal, however, said it should be a holiday for the lawyers. Nor did they advocate the eight-hour day for the workers of the legal apparatus. In Boston, only the New England School of Law, the Law and Justice Program at UMass, and the College of Public and Community Service celebrate the green and the red. Among the orderers, the police, Law Day isn't much of a holiday either. Yet police, men and women, all over the United States, owe a lot to May Day and the Boston police. It is true that more than 1,000 Boston men of blue lost their jobs owing to Calvin Coolidge's suppression of the Boston police strike of 1919. They had been busy earlier in the summer during May Day. At the same time, there were lasting gains. A small pay increase, $300 a year. Shorter hours, 73 to 90 a week had been the norm. And most important, free uniforms. An ending. Where is the red and green today? Is it in Mao's red book? Or in Colonel Qaddafi's green book? 
Some, perhaps. Lee Hunt, the English essayist of the 19th century, wrote that May Day is the union of the two best things in the world, the love of nature and the love of each other. Certainly such green union is possible because we all can imagine it, and we know that what is real now was once only imagined. Just as certainly, that union can be realized only by red struggle, because there is no gain without pain. As the aerobaticians say, or no dreams without responsibility, no birth without labor, no green without red. The children used to celebrate May Day. I think schools stopped encouraging them sometime around when Law Day was created, but I'm not sure. A correspondent from East Arlington, Massachusetts, writes that in the late 1940s, on any given Saturday in May, anywhere from 10 to 30 children would dress up in crepe paper costumes, hats, shirts, etc. We would pick baskets of flowers and parade up and down several streets until the flowers ran out. The whole time we would be chanting, May party, May party, rah, rah, rah. A leader would be chosen, but I don't remember how, probably by throwing fingers out. Then we would parade up to Spy Pond at the edge of the center off Lake Street and have a picnic lunch. This correspondent now teaches kindergarten. In recent years, she continues, I have always decorated a maypole for my kindergarten class. They do the decorations, actually, and we would dance around it. It would always attract attention from the older children. The best way to learn more is to participate in May Day activities and to talk to your neighbors using your library's newspaper collection, talking to school teachers, and getting people to talk about their childhood, their strikes, and their working conditions are good ways too. Thanks for listening to this audio version of the incomplete, true, authentic, and wonderful history of Mayday. For a book-length version of this text, check out PM Press, and for more audio zines, check out resonanceaudiodistro.org. Also, we are pleased to announce a forthcoming network of anarchist podcasts called Channel Zero, including The Final Straw, IGD Cast, Witch Side Podcast, Soulcast, The Rebel Beat Podcast, The Crime Think X Worker Podcast, Submedia, and Resonance Audio Distro. That's us. For more info, check channelzeronetwork.com. 